Greetings, this is Ahmet Tekeloğlu from Meydan, the Busleyman Center for Global Islamic Studies and the Director of Meydan and the Meydan Podcast. And today on Meydan Podcast, we have Ahsan Nimet Cebeci, PhD student at NALC at Harvard University near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at Harvard University uh, is our guest, and we will talk with Nima Jebeji about her dissertation, currently titled Ontology of the Soul Among Early Ashari uh, Theologians, um, and we'll hear about her background, what led her to study um, the subject, you know, philosophy track um, in, in NALC at Harvard, and her perspectives on current state of the field and what she is trying to, to address. Nima, thank you so much for giving us your time today and being our guest. Of course, I'm very happy to be with you all. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Of course, we are, we are very happy that you are here to start off with rather than me reading a bio of yourself. If you could talk a little bit about your background, your educational background, um, what led you to come to, to Harvard um, and um, maybe just the beginnings of your journey in terms of this exploration on the Ashari theology. And then we'll talk in the next phase of our conversation, I'm sure mm-hmm. about like more subsets of your research, your research questions, what are some of the gaps that you recognize in the field as well? Okay, yeah, of course. I think I'll begin with undergraduate. That seems to make the most sense. I studied philosophy in undergraduate and that happened. Um, I wasn't so sure going in what I was interested in doing. I thought I would study law afterwards. And so I was preparing myself to study law eventually. And I enjoyed my philosophy classes the most in those first, uh, that first year at Princeton where I was studying. I suppose I can only describe it as a kind of self-indulgence. <laughs> I allowed myself to continue pursuing that. At first, the justification I gave to my family was that it would be a good uh, option for pursuing law later on. And then I slowly transitioned them into the idea of accepting it as a field in itself and as a goal in itself. But uh, for me, the reason was that I just really loved the kinds of questions that we got to ask and the methodology that we got to employ in that field, which was basically just rigorous thought, rigorous writing, and, uh, you know, dealing with with ideas and uh, very little historiography and, uh, you know, other academic methods beyond just the strength of our own, you know, critical reading and, and thinking. And I really enjoyed that. And I found that it suited me. And while I was there, I was, uh, you know, I was studying philosophy from the perspective of uh, analytic modern Western philosophy. This was the dominant kind of uh, field available at Princeton. And I began asking myself questions about, you know, what my own belief had to say, my my own faith had to say on the questions that were being asked. So I took a lot of courses um, based again on the on the professors and what was kind of available at the time and and interest. Uh, we had a lot of courses on personal identity theory. There were one or two professors working on that. And that's just the question of like what makes any entity itself over a period of time, what maintains the mm-hmm. identity of a thing with itself over time and uh, specific to uh, people, I mean, to, to things that we might call objects, we might call persons. So that was one topic. And then another that was, uh, I took a few courses and was philosophy of mind. And in these uh, realms, under these questions, the uh, the typical dominant views that seem to be the players were the kind of 
atheistic materialism of the analytic philosophers, at least the ones that we were reading and the views that were being put forward, they kind of filled that position. And then the the opposing position to this with regard to like, what is the human being was usually religious dualism of like body soul dualism that like that we are not just material human beings consist of a body and a soul and usually associated with a kind of religious perspective although it, it was i think historically speaking christian as a perspective and so in the in the middle of these kind of uh, sides mm-hmm. i was thinking to myself i i'm really curious to know like what is an islamic theory of the soul what are some alternatives to these positions or uh, do we fall under one of these branches and so the question of my mm-hmm. uh, dissertation came up for me back then in undergrad. At the time, while we were um, at Princeton, uh, Sheikh Jihad Brown was uh, moved to town, moved to Princeton uh, in those years. I think it was like 2011, 2012. And he had been leading uh, a circle of uh, PhD students who were in NES at Princeton uh, through a few texts. So they were reading texts on the side with him, uh, kind of outside of their university curriculum. And I uh, was asked by some of my friends at the time, and I asked them, kind of negotiated and, and uh, um, mm-hmm. joined that circle, even though I did not have the Arabic skills at the time to be able to truly participate at the level that they were, but I still wanted to be a part of it, and I was interested, and and they were they graciously allowed me to do that. And Sheikh Jihad at that time mentioned something in, in passing in one of our courses, uh, in one of our classes, I think it was the class on theology, that the Sunni mainstream position at one point was that the soul was material, and then later on transitioned to uh, it tra- the, there was a transition such that the dominant uh, position was that the soul was immaterial, and this is mm-hmm. in within the Ashari school through its history and like what what he said about it is that you know it, there is this transition and you know there were different reasons for holding both views they solved different philosophical problems and he was proposing that the immaterial soul view solved some very important philosophical problems. And I thought at that point, I found it very odd that both of these positions could coexist in a single system of thought, right? Or a single school of thought, even historically separated. I I thought it's interesting that this doesn't create a kind of break or this isn't a fault line in, in this school. It's, it's not, uh, you know, separating the Ash'aris out into two kinds of schools of thought, um, because I think uh, in the context that I was, the issue of the soul was a very core uh, issue, and I assumed that it would be a breaking point if, you know, an entire school of thought was to take two entirely divergent positions on this question. And it and you uh, mentioned, mm-hmm. Nimitz, that, that there is in the current field a neglect of the early Ashari, like, scholarship in mm-hmm. the Islamic intellectual history. Why is that? I mean, was there, have you pinpointed a, a reason for that? I mean, I I have a reason in mind. And I think that the reason is that uh, in in Nalk as a field, it seems to me that at least today in, in our time, and let's say the past maybe 15, 20 years or so, there's been a rising interest in classifying post-classical Islamic thought and like negotiating kind of claims in that realm about 
later period thinkers. So the the and and there's debate about where to start that period, right? The post-classical period versus the classical period. But um basically to me it seems measured by the influence of um Avicenna on kind of Islamic thought and philosophy. And there are many, many scholars for whom it seems that Islamic philosophy can only be used as a label for basically like Neoplatonized Aristotelian thought in the Islamic or like Arabic philosophical context. And often Kalam and specifically early Kalam, so uh, classical uh, period Kalam, is kind of uh, labeled as the is labeled widely as theology and is considered to not be so philosophically robust usually because mm -hmm. it has this religious uh, you know like the theology label has to do with commitment to a religious text and scriptures and so the project the is, and, then mm -hmm. the and then there's philosophy, philosophy. there's I yes see. right or or purely philosophy right there are those who are trying mm -hmm. to advocate for the idea that the theological philosophy of the post-classical thinkers so this avicinan influenced like Eshari thought or um, avicinan influenced theological work is, is philosophy like that, that kind of pushes that towards philosophy mm -hmm. and then anything that kind of lacks the the influence of falsafa is dismissed as, as apologetics mm -hmm. and this is found in differing tones i think across different scholars who uh, even i mean they disagree amongst themselves about the finer points of this but i think that this is a general trend that could use some pushback i think we we need to be more rigorous and precise about what we consider to be philosophy and then apply that consistently across the different schools that that label is uh, being used for or not being used for and i and i think that there's a lot of material in early Kalam that is philosophically very robust and is deserving of that uh, attention uh, to bring it forward, you know, and, and to bring it into the field as like, this is something that's a worthy competitor in terms of, you know, a, a proposed, mm -hmm. for example, anthropology, a proposed vision of what the human being is in the mix with the other uh, more Avicenna-influenced yeah. models. Uh, just at this point, if you could also expand a little bit about this is fascinating, first of all, for someone like myself, who's not an expert in, in Islamic philosophy um, by any measure. Uh, but like you, you, you make references to to the psychology and anthropology of the core figures mm -hmm. among the early Ashari theologians. Can you expand a little bit more on that, especially also non-specialists, you know? What does it mean and what implications would it have for our understanding of a fuller understanding of the Ashari theology? Sure. So when I'm using the terms anthropology and psychology, I'm using them in the kind of way that they are used in the context of philosophy. So with anthropology, I, I'm referring specifically to the question of what the human being is, just this philosophical realm this debate of what is a human being that's what i yeah. what i mean by anthropology and then by psychology it's a kind of you can think about it as a subfield of that um or as its own kind of question but the question of what are um what is the mental um side of the human being right like how do we how do we understand and characterize the mental phenomena that human beings experience um and this, this, the question of the soul is usually associated with those mental phenomena. So you might think of it as falling under the realm of psychology. But then again, the question of the soul is also very relevant for the question of what is the human being, particularly for those figures who 
associate the human being exclusively with the soul, right? They say that the human being is the soul alone and not, for example, the soul and the body or the body alone. So for those people, the the theory of the soul is also like the core of their anthropology. So the the, the questions are a little bit overlapped in in dissertation topic, and the the questions that I'm dealing with spread are spread throughout these fields. So it's a little bit difficult to parse out, but that's how I'm using those terms. And next question, and and I feel like you know you have jumped several loops over that as you were mentioning your 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 trajectory uh, into this research. So obviously, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more later, maybe about like your specific department, your advisors, mm-hmm. and as such. But so this works then, like the the site of the, uh, the 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 research for you then is is primary texts, and are there more prominent one among others in the primary texts that you're uh, engaging, uh, especially if you could maybe bring in this point, one other aspect is for those who might be similarly interested in exploring Islamic philosophy, well, if you can shed light at some point on what are the linguistic skills and other mm-hmm. maybe skills, analytic uh, and as such that they need to, to bring into the picture, that would be wonderful too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. So, um, yes, I am dealing pretty much at this point exclusively at the stage in my research with primary sources. And I think uh, in the field, I consider myself uh, as falling somewhere between intellectual history, um, which is where the the Nelk side of my <laughs> research interests and academic, uh, you know, character places me, and between history of philosophy and philosophy proper. So the intellectual history side of things, that's what pulls me more to look at, you know, secondary sources, bibliographical sources and um, biographical, I'm sorry, biographical sources and placing these thinkers in the context uh, that they inhabited historically fulfills that um, kind of side of my interest. But then I have a very powerful interest in the purely philosophical side of things, which leads me to just ask, okay, what 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 are these scholars claiming in these texts? Like, what are what are the ideas that they're putting forward? And like, how do we reconstruct those ideas? Or what is the rigor of those ideas? And just taking those at face value um, mm-hmm. and setting aside historical uh, considerations about them, right? So I'm kind of working in between these two, um, you know, research instincts. And um, that means that the majority of my time is kind of spent looking at the primary texts that we have extant from the thinkers that I'm interested in and like really trying to break down the arguments and the theories that are found in those texts. Um, so I'm dealing a lot day to day with the um, the extant texts, primarily from Imam al-Ash'ari himself, who is the eponym of the school, of course. And I'm hoping to include as well some of the other early Ash'aris, primarily al-Baqillani and al-Baghdadi and potentially al-Isfaraini. But because I'm in, you know, uh, uh, the early stages still, I'm not sure exactly how wide the scope is going to be. But um, some of the core early figures from the Ash'ari school I'm hoping to include are those. So mm-hmm. those are the thinkers, and and what I'm dealing with is their extant works. There's a lot of works that we don't have, unfortunately. A lot of them are specifically on my topic. There are several, mm-hmm. you know, um, indications that there were works dedicated specifically to um, what the human being is and what you know the role of the soul is within that question. 
but unfortunately mm-hmm. we don't have those uh, for Imam al-Ash'ari himself. And uh, what uh, you know remains for me to do is kind of piece together the picture from his other works, from passing mentions and kind of from the you know negative space of um, you know what what we do have about his system of thought. And that has been the kind of uh, labor of this year that I've been working on. And mm-hmm. uh, hopefully as I move into later sources after him, there will be some, they had more contact with his work and more access than we do today, right? So some of the works that uh, he wrote were available to them and are not available to us. And hopefully that will provide stronger clues and quotations and things from uh, mm-hmm. from his perspective. And then of course they will, I think, offer alternative um, theories to his. It's, it's fascinating. So mm-hmm. you're, you're in search of texts and... Um, and, and and delving through uh, these you know ancient texts and uh, and exploring these questions through them, um, wonderful. So to, to repeat that question, mm-hmm. um, what linguistic skills are needed for that? Um, also, like if you can, in terms of like you know coming into your program, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps you know what were some some other skills that that right. you thought that you needed maybe like a new ones that you you recognize that that you would have to um to, to gather um for this research mm-hmm. so when i came into my field my experience had been if i i guess if i turn back to the question of mm-hmm. uh how i uh came to be like you know my my bio that i didn't complete but uh, uh i had that philosophical training at uh, princeton for undergrad and then from there, I moved to Istanbul to do uh, my master's degree at Ibn Haldun University. And I was also at the same time trying to pursue classical Islamic studies by reading texts with scholars in the city. And I spent about four years doing that in Istanbul. And that gave me the opportunity to really work on my Arabic like for the whole term of those four years. I had started at Princeton about halfway through my uh, degree. So I started uh, my junior year on Arabic and continued through Turkey. Uh, so six years total by the time I was uh, in the PhD program. And that, of course, is probably the most important uh, skill for for Nelk and, and uh, for someone interested in, you know, philosophy and theology in the Islamic world. Obviously, uh, Persian is a very important uh, other language that's being worked in, but a lot of the, uh, you know, because the the language of scholarship was often Arabic, even scholars who are non-Arabs are writing in, uh, writing their work in Arabic. So it's the, it's the core and the most important uh, language skill, linguistic skill is just the ability to be able to read and access those texts in their original Arabic, because depending on translation is a very kind of, uh, you know, it will uh, make the path of research much more difficult. And then also when it comes to philosophy specifically, but perhaps across all disciplines uh, under the umbrella of Nelk, it's, uh, you know, it it leaves you at the mercy of the translator, essentially, like you're dependent on the views and the understanding of the translator, which in philosophy is risky in that you don't know that they have, they might have the linguistic training to translate an Arabic text, but whether they have the philosophical training and also the historical training to understand um you know, what it is that's being said precisely and what the terminology is in the context that they're they're translating from, that is a little bit more touch and go, I find, um, 
in our field. I mean, there are, there are uh, examples of very good work, but it's all it's a risk that uh, you know that the researcher at, at the level of the PhD probably shouldn't be taking and should be accessing the sources directly in in the Arabic that they are in. So that was, I think, one of the most important things that I got uh, while I was in Istanbul is that very core training, and not just in linguistic skills, but in also exposure to texts that were in the genre of theology. Um, and that really primes you, like once you have a sense of a survey of topics, then you know that when, you know, the term tabi'a is being used in this context, it means a certain thing, it has a certain connotation, and uh, you don't just translate it um, on its face with its linguistic translation necessarily. So th this kind of training was very, very helpful for me, I think, coming in. And thankfully, my my advisor, Professor Rueheb, um, I think really valued that training and saw the value in it. And, you know, I think that that helped me um, coming in. And then when I was there, it helped me a lot because he also teaches directly from primary texts in his graduate seminars, which was something that I really appreciated while I was there. Um, while I was on mm -hmm. campus, that is, taking courses. That was a great experience and also furthered my training and gave me much more exposure to the same sets of concepts in the Fetsafa, in the side of the peripatetic uh, philosophers, which I had had no exposure to before that, and like filled out the, the whole historical picture for me in a way that I didn't have before. So, I mean, some of the training is stuff that you get along the way of the PhD, but um, as a prerequisite, of course, some uh, mm -hmm. A good, you know, strong base of Arabic is always very useful. And then exposure, I think, to primary sources is definitely a plus as well. That definitely, I'm sure, will be helpful for, for those who are thinking of um, continuing on, on your footsteps. Um, one of the terms that's interesting for me in, in your, like, you know, initial writings um, that I've had a chance to, to look at is that the cardiocentrism yes. <laughs> uh, and cephalocentrism, yeah. um, right? So can you uh, can you expand on uh, these as well? And then um, I think like you pinpointed on the gap that you are trying to address. Together mm -hmm. with those, if you could also tell us, in addition to getting a fuller understanding and a deeper appreciation of the early Ashari, um, like you know, weave uh, of the self, like, you know, what are some other um, sort of consequences or openings that, that this more deeper, fuller understanding can open for us? And for broader sort of study mm -hmm. of philosophy and um, sort of like, you know, classical Islamic philosophy as well. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll start with why I was um, back from undergrad when I heard this idea of the material soul uh, that, that piqued my interest back then. I think. Um, uh, I, I pursued this um, because I saw that it offered a median position between the two kinds of uh, sides that I saw being debated in my philosophy courses, which is this strict dualism that separates body and soul entirely, the spiritual and the physical entirely, and kind of divorces the two from one another. And the, the fact that the materialism side was strictly associated with an uh, with an irreligious or like an atheistic uh, stance what i when 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 somebody proposes the idea of the material soul this kind of stands as like an, an uh, uh, a potentially completely different stance that i thought would have you know a very interesting impact on the kinds of philosophical discussions that were happening between those two positions so um i essentially in my phd i'm kind of setting off in search of that material 
materialist anthropology, right? Like what if the human being, both body and soul, was a, a physical material entity? Um, and that's the kind of, you know, um, view that the idea that the soul is material amounts to. Um, there are a lot of fine points to the discussion, um, but what I'm finding is that there's a kind of spectrum of views, and one side is like a strong materialist position where the human being is just this physical frame that you see, the body. Um, and for the early Ashwadis, the body is made up of particles and properties. So the particles make up, uh, you know, the, the matter of the entity, the human being, and the properties that are in them, they don't take up space, but they grant the uh, particles the qualities that they have. Um, so that's the base ontology that we're dealing with. And the strong materialist position basically says that the human being is just those things, right? Just the particles that make them up and the properties that those uh, particles have. There's a kind of median position that we can say that the Ash'aris historically held, uh, which is the idea that the soul is a subtle body that's within the physical body. Um, this is the jism Latif position. And that is also, strictly speaking, materialist, because it says that the soul is a body. It's just a kind of body that, that can't be perceived and has, you know, a, a, it's slightly different in its characteristics than visible perceived bodies. And it's somewhere inside the physical visible body. And then there is the, the other end of the spectrum, which is the idea that the soul is completely immaterial. It's not located in space-time. It's therefore neither in nor out of the body, technically speaking, right? It's not in space at all. And um, this is the view that's typically characterized as arising later and then dominating the Ashari school. Now, I think there's reason to doubt that it was necessarily dominant. I think... Um, that also might be a position arising from giving like a lot of credence to or expanding or exaggerating the influence of Fetsefa on later theology. Um, mm. But that is something to adjudicate, you know, in another space, I think. Um, yeah. But it seems that there is reason to think that there are scholars who continue to hold the material soul theory throughout the Ashari school's history, that it doesn't disappear. It's not completely replaced. It continues. And so it's a, you know, a viable position, it seems like, for many theologians through, you know, through even till today. And so mm. then that material position becomes an interesting subject of study. How does it work? You know, what, what exactly are we talking about here? What is the soul on this view? How is um, How are the mentions of the ruh in scripture dealt with on this view? Um, and for Imam al-Ash'ari, it's very interesting. It seems like his position is that the ruh, uh, the term ruh refers to the kind of nourishing air that we take into the body. And it's a subtle body, because air is also kind of subtle body for these thinkers. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not like its own kind of special entity. It's not usually what one would think of when we say soul. So I think it's not necessarily accurate to refer to the ruh on his view as being the soul, because it doesn't play any of the kinds of actions. It doesn't play most of the types of actions that we consider to be associated with the soul. So for example, it doesn't, it's not a center of thought. It's a nourishing thing that's required for life in the human being. Um, and without it, when it leaves the body, life also like leaves the body, but it's not a center of thought or action um, in the way that we think of the soul as being. 
So for Imam al-Ash'ari and those who hold similar views to him, it seems like the heart is the, the thing that plays that uh, role. So I think what I'm interested in is theories of the soul. I'm not strictly interested in theories of the ruh. And there's an important distinction there because if it turns out mm -hmm. for these thinkers that the ruh is um, not particularly soul-like, then I want to go looking for the, the entity in the human being that plays that role, that plays the role that, that we associate with the soul. So I'm interested in the philosophical, you know, English term of the soul, uh, more so than how the term ruah has been used throughout history, which is a slightly different topic. Um, so if I was to go looking for the soul on Imam al-Ashari's picture, it seems to me at this stage in my research that um, the thing that I'm looking at is going to be the heart. Right. Um, the heart mm -hmm. is the thing that's most commonly in his writings referred to as, you know, the center of kind of certain forms of agency and thought and uh, belief um, and has a lot of these kind of core roles that we associate um, with the term soul. And this is where the term cardiocentrism comes in. So for these thinkers, it seems like um, the heart will be this kind of central operating system of the, the human being. Uh, rather than the ruh, for example. And there are going to be variations on that, I think, between different thinkers. So at, at this point, I've looked most closely at Imam al-Ashari's work, but I haven't moved on to the other thinkers, so I don't have so much the detail of their works um, and their views. But um, uh, for Imam al-Ashari, it seems like he has the most reductive understanding of the ruh, and the, the human being's kind of spiritual and mental activities take place for the most part in the heart. But and not the brain. So not the brain, the... yes. So the, the brain, other, right? Yes, the brain is not so active uh, or such doesn't play such a big role. It seems like in the Ashari views, it seems like the brain has um, a place more in the falsafa influenced understandings of the human being. So there are some that propose that the brain takes on certain mental, takes some of this mental load and does some of that work. But I think, you know, there's not going to be a picture in which the brain is the full center of the human being or that the brain is the, um, the you know, the candidate for soul. Um, mm -hmm. It's just that it plays a certain, uh, on some views, it plays a certain portion of those roles. And on others, it's not really mentioned at all, even. So the cephalocentrism, I don't know that it will reach centrism, really. Like, I don't think it will mm -hmm. be um, there. I have not come across a view yet where the brain ends up being the center. Um, but it does seem like in the more offensive influenced positions that it has a role to play. So I think I might have been uh, kind of uh, projecting, um, you know, from our times when I was thinking about the cephalocentrism. I think the dominant view is going to be rather this cardiocentrism. Mm -hmm. and, and that will be the thing that we come across in the, the views of the early Ashari's. Because if, um, I mean, it's not like they consider the human beings to be lacking in these, uh, you know, spiritual, emotional, mental faculties and qualities. It's just that they're placing it in a different, uh, you know, they're they're assigning it to a different aspect of existence and, uh, you know, locating it at a different place in the human body mm -hmm. and conceiving of the human being differently in light of that uh, placement, right? That's that's fascinating. It's really um, again, like and even for non-specialists, I think quite quite interesting to um, to shed light into. We have another, I guess, like you know, some some more time. Uh, I think like about you know six seven more minutes. Mm -hmm. sure. um, in in that, I want to to ask two questions. One is in terms of 
like you know because in in, in Maidan you know we have um, a, a large segment of you know, graduate students and always questions around research and you know accessibility of manuscripts and as mm-hmm. such you know becomes a concern understandably so mm-hmm. um so if you could shed some light into your ways of accessing uh these uh the manuscripts that you are researching uh, and you have already highlighted the difficulty of accessing some mm-hmm. and some some lost works as well mm-hmm. um and then a second sort of um uh, let me just stop there and then sure. I'll ask the second question separately because I know that I'm making it difficult for no, you no, no, uh, with these, you know, um, added questions. So, yeah. So the first question is then on um, like, you know, access issues mm-hmm. in terms of your research. Mm-hmm. Um, are, are, are resources digitized um, um, and, uh, and as such? Um, a lot of di- resources are digitized, thankfully. And um as a Turkish citizen, I rely very heavily on the Turkish manuscript libraries because it's easier for me to access as a citizen. So I'm I'm lucky in that respect. But I do think a lot of these things are just kind of uh, things as grad students that we pick up through exposure and practice. And um, I think uh, practically speaking, first steps um, are always if you're considering a set of texts or if you're considering a scholar, for example, you go to the biographical kind of uh, entry level works on that scholar. You you start to compile a list of texts, you find which texts are available uh, in a modern publication, and very often the introductions of those modern publications will start you off with a list of manuscripts that those editors have used, and then you can compile those across several, for example, like modern editions, different editors will have focused on different manuscripts, so you can kind of get yourself a preliminary set of um, you know, manuscripts, lists of manuscripts of those texts from those Mm -hmm. uh, sources. And that's kind of a a speedy shortcut. Um, When it comes to accessing manuscripts, I think um, there are a lot of kind of, uh, you know, tips and tricks that people can pick up uh, through practice, a lot of things that are available online. But um, very often it just comes down to like emailing a library (laughs) and then a helpful librarian kind of, you know, Uh, turning around and offering you that resource or telling you how, you know, what the process is for acquiring that manuscript. And um, uh, sometimes it feels like a stretch, but then you get a response several weeks later and and you're surprised by the results. So that's, I think it's always uh, just a useful thing to reach out to the libraries that you're interested in. And um, shout out to all the manuscript librarians (laughs) for doing the the good work for for all of us. Yeah. Uh, And and gratitude to them. Yes, definitely. Um, So that's one way. The more difficult thing is like works that are not extant. So sometimes, I mean, you'll read about those in other primary sources, right? They'll mention texts that don't, that we don't happen to have or that uh, we don't know of any existing Mm -hmm. copy. Um, There, you know, there are lots of treasures to be discovered, I think, in the manuscript libraries that are, you know, that exist around the world that, uh, you know, in cataloging, there are often mistakes made. Um, that, uh, you know, things are mislabeled, things are not labeled to begin with. Um, so, you know, some texts may be extant and we just don't know where they are. We haven't located them. We haven't identified them. And so there's probably lifetimes of work that you could do just 
looking through one by one different texts in a catalog, a library's catalog. And, and I think many discoveries, unfortunately, it's kind of happens by chance, right? And that can lead a scholar off on a new track, a new tangent of work that they didn't think that they were going to do, but they discovered a text that, you know, um, and it's just like divine, <laughs> divine intervention at that moment in their career that they happen to come across this thing. But uh, uh, there's no, there's no real way to structure or plan it uh, you know, to make it happen, except um, increasing exposure. So a little bit is left up to luck in that way. But um, for the extant text, the processes are a little bit more clear, right? For the ones that are exist exist or and are published, um, you know, there are databases that we can search and uh, mm -hmm. uh, ways that we can access those. But, yeah. And my final question is more than invitation to you to highlight any maybe like you know missing points um that that you would like to 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 highlight um but I, I think like you know that point around um for a study like this you know what would be an implication for also perhaps like our modern day everyday mm -hmm. life and all for those people who are reading these scholarly works and and early theologians and and drawing um perspectives for for themselves as well I think mm -hmm. I'm asking you to bring that that background of yours that has also done like traditional studies and mm -hmm. like kind of been in in community settings as well that's a great question I think um one of the things that I find when I talk about my research to people, specifically when I share my research with like my my um, Muslim uh, friends and colleagues, um, is that sometimes they're a little bit taken aback by the just the idea of a material soul, I think, catches people off guard. And I think often the reason for this is that um, we've been primed a little bit because many of us have... Um, I mean, the people I have in mind and myself were raised in kind of Western contexts where uh, I think the terms of the debate have always been set by the history of the Western canon and um, how that debate has occurred within the Western philosophical canon and then also the general cultural and civilization around that. And I don't think um, we need to limit ourselves in that way. And I think, um, in fact, for our day and time, a material theory of the soul has as much to offer philosophically speaking as an immaterial uh, view of the soul and it solves a lot of problems and there's no reason to reject it on the basis of it being a materialism because you know um, being materialistic about um, creation doesn't necessitate this kind of atheistic position that materialism is often associated with right like the idea that uh, for example god is the only thing outside of space time is not incoherent for us, religiously speaking. And um, that's exactly the kind of uh, place that a material uh, view on the soul places you. It means that human souls, which are created, are a part of the rest of creation and are located in space-time and are made of these same kinds of things at their base, right? Um, even if a slightly different kind of physical body, still a physical body. And I find that uh, a kind of knee-jerk reaction to that closes doors that, um, you know, theologically speaking, it's not really necessary for us to close. We don't have to carry that uh, cultural baggage because, you know, there's a there's a philosophical possibility for us here that uh, is worth considering and, um, you know, uh, is compelling and has some interesting consequences. So that's the kind of, I think, like uh, everyday consequence that it has uh, for me personally speaking. And I think, you know, 
the kind of relevance it could have for people who are interested in questions of spirituality and like, uh, you know, understanding the human experience uh, that, uh, you know, maybe don't want to go so deep as, to, you know, do a yeah. PhD on the topic, but it, like it still has consequences for the way that we view ourselves as human beings that I think are very, very mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. No, no, wonderful. I, I mentioned that that was my last question, but mm -hmm. by bringing a disclaimer to, you know, you're my mm -hmm. sister-in-law and, um, and, and using that, that relationship, I'm going to ask one more question, sure, of course. Uh, which is, if you could also, as I gather, I think one of your committee members is, 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 a, is a philosopher at Harvard and is not a specialist in Islamic philosophy mm -hmm. per se, um, um, Jeffrey McDonough, uh, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. whether for him or others who are either in academic study of you know philosophy and as such, what would be also like you know some maybe lessons learned or new insights from this in addition to a challenge to that duality that you have mentioned and to mm -hmm. the sort of mainstream dominant sort of like ways of looking at or the uh, the prioritization of the of the western canon mm -hmm. um, as well I mean, the obvious one, and the obvious one is the pertinent uh, one, the obvious uh, thing that it adds is that it, um, you know, it exposes people to an entire worldview that very often they don't fully know exists. Philosophically speaking, they're not so uh, aware of as an alternative to the kinds of things that they've been exposed to until this time. And I think, unfortunately, um, in most uh you know, uh, universities in, I mean, in the world, across the world, when we're studying philosophy, very often we're studying the history of Western philosophy and, and Western philosophy as it is today. And alternatives are offered kind of on a one class per semester, if that basis. And I think, um, you know, we need more work that uh, is interdisciplinary and crosses between, you know, uh, spaces like NELC and, uh, you know, enters into the philosophy department where, you know, we can, we can share, you know, a kind of rich, you know, history of thought and uh, philosophy that they may not have been exposed to until then. And I've found that they're professors who are exposed to these ideas are interested and appreciative of that. And um, like, I think it's in the, the you know, interests of students who are interested in philosophy, you know, for generations to come, that there be more bridges uh, built across these domains so that people have access to, you know, a richer and wider um, history of philosophy than they have uh, at, at the moment. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the, that's the obvious one, but I think it's really important and like I'm, I'm passionate yeah, about it and um, I'm yeah. grateful that I get to kind of participate between those two fields and work between those two fields right now. Wonderful. This is, this is really exciting. Thank you so much for giving us your time um, and, and good luck with writing and the, Thank you. the access to, to any manuscripts that, that mm -hmm. you think. I hope yes. you will maybe locate some of the, the lost manuscripts mm -hmm. yes, yes, come absolutely. to light uh, through this research. Uh, but uh, thank you so, so much uh, for this. Good luck with, with writing. We are truly excited and um, hopefully we'll read uh, all of uh, your writing soon on this. Then you can publish it on Maidan as well. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm very glad that we had this this conversation. I'm hopeful that Maidan podcast audience will engage with it. Um, we hosted uh, Nimet Ahsan Jebeji, uh, a doctoral candidate at Harvard University's NALC department in philosophy uh, today on her work uh, about um, early Ashari uh, theology, um, theologies of the soul uh, among early Ashari theologians. Um, Nimet, thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course.